welcome back to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossain, but I'm not hosting the podcast today. Instead, we're passing over to Ed Snowden. Shortly, the European Court of Human Rights will be issuing a judgment that we've been working on for many, many years. This judgment will look into the UK government's mass surveillance program of bulk interception and into how the UK government has access to information gathered by bulk surveillance by US intelligence agencies. The court decision is coming down on the 25th of May. It's been an extraordinarily long road. In fact, following Ed Snowden's revelations in 2013, PI had to take a case through the UK legal system at the Investigatory Powers Tribunal. And we had to go to court repeatedly uh, over a number of years to eventually take the case to the European Court of Human Rights and then many years later to the European Court of Human Rights Grand Chamber. Without further ado, I'll let Ed take over. Well, first of all, thanks for having me with you. I got to say, I've been following Privacy International's work uh, for a long time. And I, I think what you guys do is essential um, because particularly when we start to look at even, you know, advanced democracies um, in EU or recently EU countries, there, there's kind of a presumption, I, I think, that governance is of a high enough quality uh, that, that you can just trust the government, that things will work out, that it's all okay. And I think people really miss uh, largely the the reality, which is that um, governments don't reform themselves. Uh, you know, power never limits their own capability without a demand, without some kind of uh, force or pressure, or in our case here, uh, a court judgment that says, look, uh, you've gone beyond the lines. You know, your, 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 your crayon is, is way outside of what it should be doing. How did we get to this point? Um, and why did it take so long to challenge them in the context of particularly intelligence services, uh, but, but also more broadly, why didn't this happen prior to, say, 2013 when I came forward? Um, well, that's a lot of good questions there. Um, ultimately, when it came to the intelligence services, at least, that um, there's a certain amount of shooting in the dark because they obviously operate in secret. And I think a lot of people at the time didn't actually anticipate that they were gathering all of this information. Um, so they didn't, we didn't think that we needed to bring a, a lawsuit to stop a practice that we didn't really know was happening. Um, but under the human rights framework and, and the main provision that we used to take this case, which is Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, um, when data is gathered, and it doesn't matter by whom it can include the intelligence agencies, it has to be for um, both in accordance with law, the gathering, and necessary and proportionate. And it's that latter aspect in particular that the, the data being collected is for a necessary purpose and the collection is proportionate that actually if enforced correctly, can help us take control over that data. And that's a lot of what we've tried to do in this case and a lot of what we see as we've gone through the case, um, subsequent courts, especially the European Court of Human Rights, starting to do, which is saying that this data actually can't be passed around to anyone for any purpose. It has to be kept for limited periods of time. They've not gone far enough in that regard. We'd like them to go further, and that's why we're awaiting this latest judgment from the Grand Chamber. Um, but it helps us take back a little bit of 
of that control. Um, but that being said, that's also why this case is somewhat unique because we actually had your disclosures to understand a bit about what data was being taken for how long, how long it was being held. So we could litigate around those issues um, uh, of storage, of what selectors were being used. And this is actually a really crucial aspect of the current judgment um, that we're appealing uh, that the selectors need to be approved by independent authorities, hopefully a judge, in our view, um, and so, so that all this data can't be abused and it'll be used for a very specific purpose. And that um, we couldn't have gotten into those details, and many other cases around the world haven't been able to get into those details because they're dealing with high-level bare powers enshrined in law, if they can take the case at all in the first place. There's a, a point on this and, and surrounding all this litigation. Um, and you you raised that idea that, you know, you suspected this was going on. And, and a lot of people did. Uh, but you didn't know it was going on. And this is one of the things that, that really drove me forward. Uh, it's this idea that if intelligence agencies or, or really any great um, power in society can simply act quietly enough um, they can violate laws, they can do whatever they want, as long as they don't get caught, as long as the public's not aware of it, as long as the courts can be sort of exempted from their role um, in refereeing uh, what can and cannot be done in society, uh, there aren't really any consequences. And to me, um, <laughs> this is a fundamentally dangerous thing for democracy because there's this idea uh, that, that democracy is, is participatory, right? So if we don't know what's going on. We merely suspect what's going on. We can't really respond to anything. We can't marshal our processes, our, our resources, our opposition to a policy because they can simply say, well, we neither confirm nor deny that this thing is, is happening at all. But isn't it true that the immune system of democracy is based on facts? And in the moment that we have today, uh, that, that's very much in, in jeopardy. That distance between what we suspect, what we believe to be happening, and what we can prove uh, to be happening is, I, I think, intentionally being obfuscated. And how does that dump cases out of the courts? You know, how did you get to bring this case in a place where there's an official Secrets Act and uh, <laughs> I would say uh, sort of a, a general allergy amongst government officials uh, to letting the public have any say at all in what they can and can't do? I just want to start on answering this question before I hand over to the much more competent authority here. I've been working on comms surveillance law for 20-odd years, and it was only in 2013 I realized that we were being played. We were being played because governments kept on introducing powers and legislation and say, look over here and fight us over here in the things that we're willing to declare that we're doing. And so we got involved and we thought we were winning. We thought we were educating parliamentarians and, and, and other people across the world. And lo and behold, they were just getting away with it over here while we were busy. And so in 2013, all of a sudden, we start reading the newspapers that all the things that we thought that we were having a, a great democratic discourse about was, was, was a myth. And that's because of the nature of secret law which is an anathema in a democratic society, at which point I'll pass over to our lawyer. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, so that's a lot of what we've been f pushing for, um, especially in this case, which is trying to 
make all of the oversight mechanisms, all of the transparency, everything that is supposed to be in place to prevent these secret activities from happening, at least at the level of making sure that the laws actually truly reflect what the intelligence agencies are doing. We're trying to make those as robust and strong as possible. And what we've learned through the course of this case is it really does take an adversarial process to help make that happen, which I think everyone has acknowledged. Um, the UK is somewhat unique, um, different from the US and some other jurisdictions, and that it has the investigatory powers tribunal. And um, this is part of the reason we were able to take this case in the first place, which we did with Amnesty International, um, Liberty here, uh, the ACLU, and a variety of other uh, organizations from around the world that defend rights. Um, but we took this case to the IPT because the IPT, unusually for a court or tribunal, actually doesn't require a claimant coming to them to prove that they were under surveillance. This is usually one of the big problems with taking surveillance cases around the world is that in order to get um, into court, in order to show you have this concept of standing, you have to say um, that, yes, I was actually surveilled, I was harmed somehow. Um, but the IPT, especially at the time we initiated this case in 2013, um, was set up specifically so if someone suspected they were under surveillance but had no real proof of it, as you usually won't because it's happening in secret, could walk in and bring a claim and say, I think I'm under surveillance. I need you, IPT, which is both a court but also has an investigatory powers mm -hmm. itself, to, to investigate and tell me whether or not I'm under surveillance. And this actually worked really well for us in this case. We didn't have a standing hurdle. We were able to go right in and say, we um, now think <laughs> that this mass interception is happening. We think this intelligence sharing is happening, although the intelligence sharing was a little bit easier because, in fact, the U.S. government had admitted the intelligence sharing was happening. <laughs> so, the, so the court and the U.K. government had to accept that that was indeed um, an activity that was taking place. Um, but the U.K. government actually responded to our initial claim by seeing, saying, neither confirm nor deny. We can't tell you <laughs> if we're actually collecting all of this data. Um, but that didn't stop our case because uh, the IPT was able to proceed on hypothetical facts. So we essentially said to the court, if hypothetically a program like Tempora existed, would it be lawful? Would, um, would the law in place right now make it a legitimate intrusion onto privacy? Um, and that actually was a pretty funny aspect of the case in that at one point we had a debate in court as to how to pronounce Tempora um, because the government would neither confirm nor deny the name of the the <laughs> program, even to the extent that um, they wouldn't pronounce it for the court. So, so the judges were asking, well, how do we say this? Do we say it as tempura, or do we say it as tempura? So is it fried Japanese food, or is it time <laughs> something to refer to a time or a time machine? And everyone in court pretty much agreed that it was probably time. <laughs> so just to give some context, because we didn't quite explain uh, sufficiently in the discussion with that, what exactly is this issue of tempora? So tempora is the code word or name for a system that the UK intelligence agency, GCHQ, uses to gather data from communication intercepts placed on fiber optic cables, which in these cables are essentially the backbone to the internet and modern telecommunication systems as we know it. Yeah, you know, this this um, issue of standing uh, as an American is really something that has plagued national security litigation in, in my country, um, because it's exactly as you say, um, one of the cases that, that brought me forward um, 
was uh, the ACLU, which is the largest uh, civil liberties organization in the United States, um, had been representing another organization, uh, Amnesty International, uh, in a case called Amnesty versus Clapper. Uh, and it was about uh, the existence of mass surveillance or the possibility of mass surveillance. And they got all the way to the level of the Supreme Court uh, before the Supreme Court flushed it. Uh, and on the their, their sort of... Um, a footnote in history on, on why they didn't respond to this court case, um, they went, well, yes, it looks probable um, that you were, in fact, surveilled. And if you were surveilled, um, it would have tremendous constitutional and legal implications, and we'd be very concerned. You can't prove that you've been surveilled. And so uh, this, this idea of being able to get the government to uh, litigate uh, hypothetical questions, at least in the context of uh, national security, uh, prerogatives does seem very useful, but at the same time that you have these sort of novel mechanisms for review, uh, you also have political forces within the UK um, domestically and actually internationally uh, that are starting to limit the venues for review that you guys have. Um, are you at all concerned about that uh, language about like uh, repealing the Human Rights Act uh, or losing access to European courts? So um, we're very concerned, obviously, about the idea of repealing the Human Rights Act. I'm hoping that that's been shelved for the moment, actually. But obviously, that's fundamental. That's the whole reason we were able to bring this case, is because the Human Rights Act incorporates into UK law privacy protections, which don't actually exist in the same way in UK law unless you're bringing in European law, the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, so it was really fundamental to us taking this case. And it would be very problematic to remove those protections without putting something else into UK law to replace them. Because as we have seen in this case and a number of other cases that we have taken, we've in fact gone up to the UK Supreme Court on a related case um, around this question of, of what court has authority to review these claims. And ultimately, um, we found that it makes the UK system much more democratic and much more robust to have courts asking these tough questions, often answering them in our favor, in favor of privacy, and therefore increasing the, the oversight of the intelligence agencies. Um, what that means for the rest of Europe, the European Convention on Human Rights um, is not, it doesn't just cover what many people think of as the EU. It actually applies to 47 different countries that have signed up to the convention. Um, and so, for instance, when we get this judgment uh, at the court, it will apply directly to the UK, but it will be very persuasive um, for all of those other 47 countries. So it has that's almost wow. 500 million people. Um, so it has a really big impact. And that's really why it's really important, I think, for all countries um, to, to sign up to these sort of rights regimes because it can protect all of their people. And you get to use the different systems of different countries um, to try to test out different ideas because Again, talking about how hard it is to get into court, different countries vary in that regard. So actually, there have been cases that have come out of Sweden, France, um, Germany, uh, and that have gone up to the court too and, and delineate Hungary and delineated sort of different aspects um, of our rights, which makes this particular, at least, mechanism really important. And for the moment, at least, the UK is not extricating itself. <laughs> so we've, um, we, we've sort of dove really deep. Uh, so let me back out for a minute. Tell me more about the general case or what's in controversy here uh, and what are you hoping to win? Uh, and not just what are you hoping to win under the law? What can the courts provide? What can the process provide? Um, but what do we really need? What's being sought here 
Um, and how do you think the government's likely to respond uh, when they realize, which they certainly already have, what's at stake for them? Right. We um, took the case with 10 other human rights organizations. So I mentioned Amnesty International, um, Liberty, which is a civil liberties organization here in the UK. Um, but then a number of, because at the time this was seen as such an important issue around the world, a number of other organizations from all around the world joined the case too. The ACLU in the US, um, Legal Resources Center from South Africa, uh, Bites for All out of Pakistan. So it really was an international effort to, to bring the case. And fundamentally, what we were trying to do was stop mass surveillance. And we haven't gotten there, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> That's been a real uphill battle. It's not just you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's been a real uphill battle. Um, but fundamentally, that's what we were trying to do. Um, to get a little bit more into the weeds of that, uh, I mentioned Article 8 earlier. This is the right to privacy under European law. And um, that sort of has two components into it. One says that if you're going to violate privacy, which is a qualified right, states can intrude upon it at times. But it has to, the, those intrusions have to be both in accordance with law and necessary and proportionate. And the in accordance with law part means essentially that you have to know that there's an intrusion that's going to take place. <laughs> and there has to be some law on the books that makes it relatively foreseeable, um, not necessarily that you are going to be spied upon, but that someone, you know, that this type of, of surveillance can take place, um, that there have to then be safeguards in place, recognizing that surveillance takes place in secret. So you need those really important oversight and safeguards and mechanisms to make sure it's not abused. Um, and then finally, you have to ask the question is, even though you have this power, is it really necessary and proportionate to use this power? And fundamentally, that's where we come down strong on the side of saying mass surveillance, um, this type of bulk interception that the UK is engaging in isn't necessary or proportionate. Uh, for hundreds of years, we've tried to strike a balance around surveillance and say, yes, there are some people we need to investigate, criminals, so on, and for that reason, if you can articulate reasonable suspicion, some reasons why those people might be doing something wrong, you can investigate them. But it's unacceptable to put everyone under surveillance because once you've done that, you've essentially shifted the power so much from the individual to the state that it makes it much harder for the individuals um, to freely engage in democratic society. But I have to say it's even shocking that, because uh, Caroline said there's two tests. The first is, is there a law? And second, um, is it necessary and proportionate? But even on the question of, is there a law? There's been some amusing moments where uh, even when uh, the government is forced to uh, admit that, oh, uh, it's not quite a law, um, we'll figure it out. What, the, what was their response? Yeah, so, so with regard to intelligence sharing, so that, um, there was no law in the books. There was nothing. So they were clearly going to lose that first prong <laughs> in accordance with law. Um, and so most of the way through the case, um, they produced a two-page document. It wasn't titled... It wasn't clear what this was. It was just sort of a two, untitled two-page document setting out what they said had been, of course, their policy all along with regard to how they treated data that was shared from the US to the UK and then used by the UK intelligence agencies. Um, yeah, and ultimately, this is where uh, it can be problematic, <laughs> litigating, especially at the UK level at the IPT. The IPT said, OK, 
that's good enough. Now that you've given us this two-page document that's not a law, <laughs> there's no you know, sanction of parliament or anything else around it, that means that people now know that if data is shared um, with the UK, this is how it's going to be treated. And, and that's essentially one at the IPT level on everything that had happened before that two-page document was produced. Um, all the intelligence sharing was held to be unlawful. But going forward, they said that two-page document was sufficient. And we're still having to fight, yes. fight that battle. Um, because, yeah, we, we say it's certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. No, I mean, this is one of the things that really struck me um, when I was in the NSA, uh, actually investigating what exactly was going on. Um, the majority of our international agreements, whether it was with the UK, whether it was with, uh, we, we call them the Five Eyes, right? This is the largest intelligence conspiracy um, amongst uh, English-speaking Western democracies. It's the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. Um, and these guys, uh, you know, we, we, we do everything together. We actually put all of our surveillance, um, all of our mass surveillance, as it is rather, in sort of a common bucket that we can each uh, cross-search relative to each other's. Um, but then we have other uh, ones that go a little bit further afield, still people who are very close, uh, Germany, France, Japan, um, and, and then even more far afield. It goes to, you know, uh, Latin and Central American countries. Uh, Eastern European countries um, that we have a, a little bit less trust in, but we're still sharing extraordinary amounts of information, uh, largely, again, at least in the United States, without any prevailing law. Um, and one of the ways that we see this uh, happen and broadening, when you think sweep of history as opposed to a particular case, is we lobby secretly the intelligence services of these countries to then in turn lobby their lawmakers to reform, I would say rather corrupt, uh, reform their laws to make them more like our own in the United States. Uh, and of course, when lawmakers hear from intelligence officials is always very effective, they, they sort of get to ghostwrite all of the, the laws uh, that, that uh, uh, oversee these things. But in the absence of these, and actually even uh, in the presence of these legal um, regimes, the sharing is primarily a service-to-service -service kind of sharing. Um, and again, this is where it's hard to see, particularly under the veil of secrecy. But what you probably saw, that two-page document, uh, is what we refer to as an MOA or an MOU, a Memorandum of Agreement or Understanding. And it's really a gentleman's agreement. Uh, the one um, with the State of Israel, for example, uh, said we'll share raw information that we haven't scrubbed, we haven't redacted, we haven't done anything with it. Uh, it could have judges' information in there, it could have politicians' information in there, extraordinarily sensitive information. Uh, and we would just ask the Israeli government to pinky promise uh, that they wouldn't use this against us. Uh, and if they found information that was about an American citizen, uh, they would just destroy it. And then we hand over this giant bucket of so many Americans' lives uh, and say, you know, like uh, sort of Halloween candy, go look for what you want in there. The thing that strikes me when we talk about uh, necessity and proportionality, um, which are the, the prongs that um, we have to challenge in the absence of the government acknowledging that there's no legal footing here, is the system that's being challenged is one of really global mass surveillance. 
Um, it affects uh, domestic citizens just as intensely as it does international citizens at the point of interception, at the point of collection. Now, governments in many different states, uh, including my own country, uh, they argue, well, yes, the information is collected. Yes, your information is intercepted. Yes, it's all put in the bucket. But we're not looking at it because we're actually looking for foreign activity. We're looking for criminal activity. We're looking for all of these things. So you're not really, really impacted by this. Um, I would wonder in the UK, what are the arguments they make for <laughs> justifying uh, the idea that it is necessary and proportionate to monitor the bulk of society, I mean, they call it bulk collection instead of mass surveillance, uh, to intercept communications en masse rather than in a targeted basis. They, well, they always begin the argument with reminding everyone what they say is what's at stake, um, which is legitimately um, that, of course, they're trying to protect us from terrorism, from child exploitation, from all these potentially heinous crimes. Uh, this is the way every single time we go into the court with the government, this is the first half an hour of their, <laughs> their speech is, is describing this threat. Um, and that, of course, is a legitimate reason to engage in surveillance, but it can't be the end all and be all of the necessary and proportionate inquiry because otherwise we would have no privacy whatsoever. It can't always weigh so heavily on the scale that prevents this um, all forms of surveillance. So then we have, um, in this case in particular, gotten much more into this discussion around, well then, if you're collecting everyone's data, when does the privacy violation begin? Um, and our argument is very much um, under the law, uh, and, and the courts have agreed with us that it does start from the point of interception. In fact, it may even start from the point where there's a law in place that says you can collect everyone's data. At that point, privacy is violated. Uh, then um, once you're already in that realm, you have to say, well, then what can you do to minimize that, that violation? And we have argued very heavily that you need to have reasonable suspicion to, to target someone. The government comes back and says, well, that doesn't work for us anymore because now that we have all these vast amount of data, we've found that it's really useful. We can use it to, to show us patterns that we didn't um, know were there before, to try to identify new individuals that we think should possibly be under suspicion. Um, they like to refer to you know, all the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns that they may reveal by analyzing all this data, the new powerful technology that we have. Um, and yet at the same breath, they say this is so powerful, but then they also say to the courts, but don't worry because we're not looking at it for most people. It's not that much of a privacy violation. Um, so there's obviously tension in that argument and we push back quite hard on it for that reason. And we say, in fact, just because you have a machine looking at this data doesn't make it any less intrusive. In fact, it's more intrusive because this is a really a golden age of surveillance right now and um, the intelligence agencies are able to gather so much and have so much insight into their lives, our lives, that we need even more robust safeguards in place. So at the very least, um, and we've made a lot of progress so far, the, the first section of the European Court of Human Rights has agreed with us in that, this regard. At the very least, once all that data is collected, if it's going to be collected, if there's no other way, as, as the intelligence agencies argue, to get at even the targeted information they want, immediately anything that's not of use needs to be discarded. And those selectors, the way they are choosing what data is to be kept, um, those need to be very heavily regulated. They need to be overseen not just by the intelligence agencies, the agents who are sitting there at their desks choosing what they want to search for, but a judge or an independent authority needs to say, yes, you can actually go looking at this information. Um, 
And if you do, um, then that judge can make the call as to whether or not it's necessary to, to search for that information and then to keep that information for a longer period of time. And then there are additional safeguards that say, um, and if you're going to keep it, you can only keep it for a certain period of time. Only certain people can have access to it. And this should apply across the board. As you talked about, there's this massive raw data intelligence sharing that is happening. And that is, in fact, part of that two-page document. They do talk about raw intelligence sharing. Um, but that needs to be circumscribed as well and, and subject to the exact same rules. Just because information is coming from another state, another state did the initial interception, doesn't in any way lessen the privacy intrusion. And in fact, like you say, um, we may be providing some states with data that they wouldn't have had been able to have access to on their own. So both the state that's handing over the information as well as the state that's obtaining it needs to have really robust and, safeguards. And you, you, in your question, you, you kind of nailed the, the, the sources of these laws. Like uh, the U.S. and the U.K. are incredibly influential at setting the standard for uh, what we would say what not to do, but um, they set the standard for other governments. Like after 9-11, up until 9-11, uh, Europe had very strong rules on what um, telephone companies and ISPs could do with the data they collected. Um, and October 16, 2001, I remember seeing this letter uh, that came from uh, George Bush uh, that went to the European Union saying, um, these are all the laws that we need you to change now. Yeah. And that was number one. Um, and so, and then um, with some of the documents uh, that were disclosed uh, uh, as a result of um, your whistleblowing, we saw that the UK actually has um, a, a part of the government here goes around the world trying to help other governments pass laws, uh, how to write the laws and, and how to get them passed to allow for this permissive arrangement. Uh, for law enforcement agencies and uh, intelligence agencies. So that's why it's so important that organizations like the ACLU in the U.S., uh, Liberty and PI in the U.K. and across Europe um, take on these two particular governments who set the bad standard. Yeah, I mean, something that, that struck me, Carolyn, in your answer was um, there's these prongs that you look at. Um, there's... The legality of the thing, there's the necessity and proportionality of the thing. Um, and this isn't a justification for a program, uh, but it strikes me as interesting that the courts uh, and the system more generally uh, does not assess the efficacy of it. Does it actually work? These intelligence services in the United States, the United Kingdom, around the world, uh, they always say, as you begin, you know, they, they pound the table and they go, look, if you don't let us do this, you're going to die. Your children are going to die. You know, the oceans are going to boil off. The atmosphere is going to catch fire. And what are you going to do then? Where's your privacy going to be then? Uh, and, you know, it's the most natural thing in the world for them. But we never see any outside review uh, even years later, when cases uh, can be shown, of where did this really work? And yet we see uh, reports in the newspaper uh, every month of every year in every country uh, where something bad happens, you know. Um, and it's a terrorist attack. Someone drives a truck into a crowd. Uh, and everyone looks at the intelligence services and go, uh, why didn't you stop this? Uh, shouldn't you have seen this guy? Uh, and they go and they look in their databases and they go, oh, well, actually, we did know about him. Actually, this person was known to law enforcement. Uh, and so it raises the question for me, having actually sat behind that desk and typed in the names of uh, people that we were suspecting of things, uh, that there is such thing as having too much information. Uh, and I think when we collect everything, um, we really understand nothing. 
because your focus, your attention is split in, in too many different ways. Uh, and this strikes me fundamentally as just a ridiculous thing. But how do you how do you contend and how do the courts contend with this inherent contradiction between the necessity uh, that is being claimed and, and the lack uh, of really constant cases. I mean, if they're watching everyone in the world, right, they should be stopping a significant percentage of crime. Uh, the absence of that kind of uh, distinct evidentiary proof uh, regarding the fact that these programs actually work. How do you deal with just the general ecosystem around this and what's really at stake um, if people like you don't show up to work? <laughs> that is a, another difficult question. Um, to start sort of what I think you're talking about initially, which is the information asymmetry that we work with, um, to be honest, that is a really difficult problem for the courts. Uh, because especially when we're litigating in open, which we want as much of this conversation to be about as possible, because that's how we're able to participate and that's how we're able to have some of the adversarial process, um, the courts normally don't get to ask those questions about was this actually effective. All they can do is rely upon the government statement that yes, it is. And in fact, we've um, prevented a large number of attacks from happening. Um, and so that's, um, that, that is always a problem that we deal with with litigation. For that reason, we, we see it as litigation is one piece in a much broader puzzle. Um, uh, but that in order for the rest of that puzzle to work effectively, you need to have people who are being transparent and open in other processes as well, like legislative processes. For instance, once um, this litigation started in the UK, it actually kicked off a process that led to new legislation in the UK as well, um, the Investigatory Powers Act. And that has its pluses and its minuses. Because <laughs> on the one hand, it was a law that um, sanctioned a lot of the activities that we still really object to. But on the other hand, it led to a more public debate around these powers that we didn't get to have before. Um, and we got a few more examples around whether or not these were truly effective or not. Unfortunately, for the moment at least, we lost the battle, particularly around the bulk powers. They were passed into law, and now we have to continue to litigate them in, in the courts, too, um, where the courts, because of... While efficacy does is part of the necessity um, inquiry, it's not the end-all and be-all under the legal standard because you could have something that is incredibly useful and effective, even if you presume it's incredibly useful and effective, and it still might not be proportionate um, because right. proportionality is not just the question of is it useful and effective, but also the question of is it legitimate in a democratic society. So in fact, for instance, the court that we're before right now at one point struck down a large DNA database here in the UK because even though the UK pretty persuasively argued that this was a helpful database for the purpose of um, identifying people who are committing crimes, the court said that's just way too much of a privacy intrusion. We don't want the, the state having everyone's DNA in a, in a big database. Um, and so there are sort of certain fundamental limits and that is where the courts can be useful here, is that uh, regardless of that information and asymmetry, they may try to set some of those fundamental limits. But it actually takes a lot of courage to do that, too. Um, and, and courts, just like everyone else, um, are, are in their political context. And so th these, this is just not easy <laughs> to deal with the subjects. But I think it is really important that we keep trying and we fundamentally keep trying to have these conversations and bringing them back to the legislatures and to the public discourse as much as possible and keeping it in, in people's minds. Yeah. You, you mentioned before that one of the desirable things that you need is uh, 
this idea of uh, a reasonable suspicion instead of just monitoring everyone everywhere all the time. And of course, I agree with this. Under the U.S. Uh, legal regime, uh, they try to do both in a strange way. Um, they just uh, spy on everyone everywhere all the time. Um, and then when the analysts, when I, sitting at the desk, want to go look at anybody's emails, anybody's web history, uh, everywhere you've gone, everything you've bought, all of these things, uh, all I have to do is type in that, as you called it, a selector. Your phone number, your credit card, your username, even the ID of a cookie uh, that's attached to your browser. It's stored in your browser when you connect to a website that you don't even know exists. But because I can see your traffic, I do. And it uniquely identifies you as you travel around the, the Internet. Um, and there's just this little box, uh, and it, which actually has a limit on how much you can type into it. Uh, and it says justification. And this is where they get that uh, idea of uh, reasonable articulable suspicion, or they try to check that box. Um, in this justification, uh, we have to type in, again, that magic phrase, uh, what our reasonable articulable suspicion is for performing this, this search. Um, and again, it can, can only be uh, a few sentences, or you'll uh, run out of room in the box. Um, in our training... It's literally described as a gut feeling you're willing to write down. And that, that's the standard, right? If it was higher, it would be probable cause. You'd have to show that there's a reasonable basis for this. But it says what you think this would be. And typically, uh, for everyone in my office, we were looking at uh, trying to track hackers um, with this. It would uh, be about two sentences. And it would say, for example, device is suspected to be associated with particular actor group. Um, because it connected to the wrong website at the wrong time, and we thought it was suspicious. There is this idea, I, I think, that when you put enough process on a thing that is itself illegitimate, uh, such as monitoring everyone in society, in an attempt to legitimize it, in an attempt to make it more proportionate, by going, well, we'll commit the crime in advance, but then, you know, we'll donate to charity or whatever afterwards to try to ease the pain uh, of our crimes, um, that that somehow makes it okay. And it strikes me when you're talking about this kind of national security litigation, uh, when we're talking about the fact that in the United States, uh, we still have people being held in indefinite detention in Guantanamo. Uh, we're carrying out extrajudicial killings um, far from any battlefield around the world. Uh, and we see more and more countries, um, older democracies in the UK, in continental Europe, that are becoming more aggressive with surveillance rather than less in response to scandals, right? Uh, they're exposed breaking the law. Um, they're exposed violating people's rights. Uh, and now the government of the day is uh, confronted with two choices. You can either reform the behavior and activities of the intelligence services to comply with the law, or you can reform the law to comply with <laughs> the activities of the intelligence services. And of course, they increasingly uh, sort of go, well, we'll just update the law to let whatever they're doing become legal. Uh, do you have any experiences with that? And the, how do you think we can best respond to that? Well, you've just described what we do for a living. Um, and it's, it's, it's not easy. It really isn't easy. Because if you try to imagine that they are being good actors when they introduce a law, and then you want to engage 
because we believe in the principles of democracy. But you also know they're not going to, either they're not going to amend the law or amend their ambitions, or if they do, they'll go into secret and do it anyways. And that's, that's what's heartbreaking about what we've discovered over the last seven years. Like There was one moment when the UK government, um, when it introduced its new uh, bill for investigatory powers regulation, um, that uh, surprisingly, the uh, a parliamentary committee that does intelligence oversight, for the first time ever, it stood up and said, you know what, this law, it doesn't have any privacy safeguards in it. And so the government's response to what should have been a very embarrassing moment for them, the government's response was to take a section that was already in the draft uh, bill that said um, safeguards, and the only amendment they did is they put the word privacy in front of it. And then they could say, hey, we've responded to this committee's concerns. And it's like, what is this sham? But nonetheless, we ended up with the rich democratic debate. And organizations like ours have to participate in that debate because if, there, if we don't exist, that debate gets even more severe, gets even more extreme. And even when they get what they want, they know that we are around to hold them to account by taking litigation, by working with the media to help uncover other types of abuses, to engage um, the general public as often as we can on these questions so, th so that it never dies. And in a democratic society, that's all we've got, unfortunately. Unless we have these grand powers to walk into an intelligence agency at any moment in time and check what they're up to, all we've got is the demos. All we've got is that, that belief that, uh, in, in democracy and that laws will only exist if, if they're, and, and investigative powers will only exist if they're, if they're necessary in a democratic society. What, what more beautiful words can there be than those? And if, the intelligence agencies and their masters are ignoring that. We're doing everything we can. Yeah, I, this is one of the things that I've struggled with personally in the last six, nearly seven years I've been in exile. Um, is there's a constant refrain um, from the, the chattering classes that say, it doesn't matter. You know, it didn't change. Mass surveillance is still happening. You won on this case. You changed the law. But as long as they continue doing what they're doing, uh, you've wasted your time. And I think that actually couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, for a long time, that, that, that bothered me. But when I think about it, when I think about what you guys are doing, um, you're in the most unequal of battles, right? You're against uh, a government that has no constitution. Um, that is aggressive, they are well-resourced, um, they have largely universal ambitions uh, for access. And at the same time, we all know it's wrong. They know it's wrong. Everyone knows it's wrong. Um, and yet, uh, I think, well, what if you didn't exist? What if this case didn't exist? Um, what if someone like me hadn't come forward? What if someone... Uh, doesn't come forward tomorrow and tell us what's changed. Uh, when I was younger, uh, you know, I, I come from <laughs> when I when I was a young man. You know, I'm 36 now, but uh, when I was a younger man, being a certain kind of person, you know, uh, being a technologist, spending your entire life basically directing the operations of computers that can't argue, 
Um, you think of life in binary, right? Uh, there's a right and a wrong. There's a one and a zero. Um, there's broken and there's solved. I was thinking, you know, how do we solve this? If people just knew about this, you know, they could decide what they want. Um, but the reality is people don't have time. Uh, the average person doesn't have time to become an expert in technology. Uh, they don't have time to bring a court case. Uh, they rely on others in our society uh, to work on their behalf where they can't, um, where they won't, where they're not able. Uh, but it is collectively that we make this progress because the thing is, all of the problems, the, the greatest problems that we're dealing with in this technical space, in this legal space, uh, it's not a case where you just get a better law and the problems go away, uh, where you get a new technology uh, and the spying goes away. We have to think about the origins of the surveillance problem. We have to think about the fact there was a system of laws that the government wasn't following. Um, and they knew they weren't following it. They'll say they won't, but they knew they weren't. These are sophisticated people, and we were all aware. Um, there are companies that are violating our rights. They know what they're doing. Uh, and they've made a cost-benefit analysis that if they just break the rules for long enough, eventually, yes, they'll be corrected. But in the meantime, they can do everything they can. And that's when I see that the fundamental problem is, is something different. It's, it's not a legal issue. It's not a technical issue. The problem that we're trying to solve is human nature. Power will use the maximum extent of its capability to achieve its goals. Um, we're not going to fix human nature, but we don't need to. What we need to is to recognize that other side of it, um, the desire for progress. Uh, when you look back through history, uh, everything was a disaster. Everything was on fire. Everything's, you know, um, pity and famine and war all of the time. Uh, and the world is still on fire today. Um, but we're getting better at dealing with it. And, and I like to think, despite all the challenges, despite all of the abuses, despite, uh, you know, the people that we have in power and the policies that they're pursuing uh, and the weapons that they wield in the context of surveillance and the way they're trying to, to sort of yoke society in new ways. It's people like you. Uh, it's Privacy International uh, and the people who support it that show us, look, laws have meaning because we invest them with meaning. Uh, it means nothing if a law is written. It means nothing if a law is passed, if the law is not respected, if the law is not enforced. But the government's not going to enforce the laws against itself. Uh, they need someone on the outside. They need an advocate. They need someone like you uh, to force them in public light uh, to do what's uncomfortable and recognize that, uh, look, they made the rules uh, intending to apply them to us. Uh, but they also need to, to live by them. And when we think about this, and to get back to this case specifically, um, I, I'd like to ask you, in the context of all of these challenges, all of these problems, and, and this particular case, uh, what progress can be won from this? You know, what is the reach? Who does it affect? Um, and how does it help? And where can we draw hope from? Uh, when so many people uh, are feeling disenfranchised and disempowered, that uh, even if the process doesn't work right now, we can make it better. And eventually it will work because we made it work. I'll start off on that. Um, and then Caroline can uh, respond specifically about the case. But uh, I am optimistic for two reasons. The first 
is, as you mentioned, um, it's about the constant struggle. And so just in the past few months, we're hearing news about India's got a new data protection law. Um, Uganda has a new data protection law. Kenya has a new data protection law. Now, 10 years ago, when we first started working each of those countries, we were told there's no way in hell we'll ever see any progress. And yet, nonetheless, there is this progress. But of course, you're entirely right. The, the mere existence of a law doesn't mean anything unless there are people who are willing to, to fight for that law every day and to use that law every day. And that's where we have amazing partners all across the world who do that now, where 10 years ago, this wasn't possible. And so the, the, the struggle around privacy, surveillance, technology, innovation, government ambition, it's just a constant struggle. And it's, it's just an honor to be able to face that every day and make grounds. And just from the work that you did, we've made so much progress, whether it's on public awareness or in the wins that we've had in the courts or we, how we've forced the courts to change the way things work. And the intelligence agencies are a lot more careful than they used to be. But just let me close with a, a, a smaller thing, which is um, I read your book. And in your book, I kept on looking for what it was that inspired you to act, inspired you to be offended by what you saw. And I, you kept on referring to it, newspaper articles, websites you visited that, that made you realize that this wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And now with the public discourse that we have globally, globally, there'll be other Ed Snowdens who are going to be reading the newspaper and they work, whether it's in the police or whether they work in some secret agency, and they're going to say, whoa, the minister's saying this over here, but I know otherwise. And then we'll have more evidence and we'll have a whole new round of holding them to account, forcing them to get back into their boxes, if even for a short while. With regard to this case in particular, we have had some wins that there's better oversight that um, there are hopefully going to be, there's going to be independent authorization for all of the choices that are made as to who will be spied upon, which is a big change for the UK. That was actually a huge change, not only in the course of our litigation, but in the Investigatory Powers Act as well. That was a new um, judicial authorization was something the UK never had before, and now it has, which was actually a significant safeguard and, and movement forward. Um, we also are seeing a recognition um, that Content for a long time, they used to say content was the most important. Uh, what you wrote in your email was the important, most important information, and therefore needed higher safeguards. Now the courts recognize that the metadata, everything about the who, what, when, where you're and you're talking, um, can be equally intrusive and powerful. And so there'll be safeguards around that. So we're making these little steps forward, and I think maybe to illustrate that the best um, as to how that's actually can sort of change the tables a little bit, um, move the goalposts for the intelligence agencies and the governments that are arguing against this in a in a separate case um, that came out of a different one of our lawsuits. <laughs> um, I was recently in Luxembourg, where the Court of Justice of the European Union sits, where we were standing up against. 20-some-odd countries that were arguing against us because the way this court works is that every country in the EU that wants to come and argue, they get to come and say something to the court. And we, um, our counsel, were arguing for our position. And all of those other countries, because we had won a previous court judgment around these issues like independent authorization and not having indiscriminate retention of data, 
they had to take our arguments seriously and convince the court to roll back what it had said previously. But no longer were we on the back foot. <laughs> they were actually having to argue as to why um, they needed indiscriminate <laughs> retention. And, and those arguments weren't always necessarily that, that strong or that powerful. Um, so sometimes we can flip, um, flip the script a little bit. And we do have those little victories that continue to to move us forward. Well, that's, I mean, that that's exactly the thing that, that gives me hope. Um, it's that fact that, you know, we don't have to win in all cases, uh, but we do have limited shots. And when we do win, they, they count. To get back to specifics, what is, in this case, um, what does it mean for surveillance generally uh, if you win and if you lose? Uh, and what does it mean for Europe? So ultimately, our ultimate goal would to have the court say that mass surveillance is unacceptable. <laughs> um, we, we realize that that is, um, while we're reaching for that, that may not be fully realistic. We'll see what the court says. Um, but at the very least, I think we're going to enshrine even further in law these important safeguards of independent authorization. Um, potentially, we'll get notifications so more and more people understand when they are under surveillance, which when you're dealing with mass surveillance, that's a whole lot of people who maybe then will be brought into the conversation <laughs> because they're worried when they see that they are actually being surveilled. In fact, maybe they do have something to fear. <laughs> um, and... Um, and hopefully then, again, that equivalence between content and metadata will also be preserved. And all those are really resetting um, uh, for 500 million people across uh, the countries that are part of the convention the, the rules for how intelligence agencies have to operate. And as we've been saying, then there's going to be a whole new fight of enforcing those rules. But at least uh, we've got another powerful tool in our belt if we win. To be able to engage on the question of what are the rules that are going to govern our lives for the next 20 to 30 years. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to... So, yeah, we lose often and we get a lot of um, uh, disappointing results from the companies uh, when we ask them to change, uh, often ridiculously disappointing results, uh, and uh, from governments. But they're on the wrong side. They're on the wrong side of history. And uh, if they're on the winning side, the future's just not going to work. Uh, but this is, you know, just let me uh, conclude by saying um, the thing that keeps those people up at night, um, the thing that makes their meetings take longer, the thing that makes them uh, worry about what's going to appear on the newspaper the next day uh, is people like you. Um, it's people who care about privacy. It's privacy international. It's the challenges in the courts. Uh, it's the people who show up uh, and say, look, the law uh, is more than letters on a page um, because we make it mean something. And you said earlier, you know, um, the work, the, the revelations, you know, uh, the court decisions, um, they produce more people like me. They produce more people in the intelligence agencies uh, who are, know what they're doing. Um, but I actually look at it as another way, um, which is it produces more people like you. Uh, rights are collective. You know, we, we talk about privacy. What does privacy mean? What is it, what is it used for? Uh, how does it help? A lot of people in society say they don't care about privacy or anything else because they have nothing to hide. And that just shows they don't understand what privacy really is. Uh, privacy is not about something to hide. 
It's about something to protect. Uh, It's about that individual and collective power because it's about protecting everyone's right, particularly the minority, right? The majority doesn't need rights uh, very much because they decide what can and can't be said, what can and can't be done. Um, the elite uh, doesn't need rights because they decide what the laws say. But the people who are a little bit different, the people who are a little bit unusual, the people who have uh, new ideas or different ideas or or just want to do something new, uh, those are the people who drive progress uh, because progress comes from trying new things and privacy comes from making mistakes. Uh, Not privacy, progress comes from making mistakes. All of our rights, whether we're talking about speech, uh, whether we're talking about press, whether we're talking about uh, ownership, um, whether we're talking about uh, the obligation that the state prove why we should go to jail instead of just picking us up and, you know, clapping us in the dungeon, uh, is because all of our rights exist to show us particular thing that we have an interest in ourselves. Uh, We do not just belong to society, we belong to ourselves and those we love, those we trust, those we selectively choose to share ourselves with. Um, And no matter who you are, no matter how big or how small, how popular or how unpopular, the one thing you can say about everyone is that we are all different. And the thing that protects us, the thing that unites us is that self. It's the recognition of our differences, the things that make us unique, the things that make us individual, the things that uh, represent what I would call a a sense of soul. And the way we express that, the way we find that, discover that, come to know that is through privacy. And that gives us the ability to share that. Um, And the fact that you're fighting this fight, the fact that you're bringing these cases Uh, is what gives me hope that the world um, (laughs) will not belong to these officials who would rather see a world without rights. Um, So thank you. we got to stop there because you're making me emotional. Seriously, kind words like that from you just means the world to us. And everybody in this office, uh, they're going to be so touched. Uh, So thank you for your time. We really appreciate this. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can support PI to take even more governments to court by going to pvcy.org slash donate. You can also like and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. It's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org. The music is courtesy of Sepia. Sepia.